This content is issued by Zeus Capital Limited, which is authorised and regulated in the United Kingdom by the Financial Conduct Authority for Designated Investment Business and is a member firm of the London Stock Exchange. Nothing in this podcast should be viewed as investment advice. Listeners should consult an investment professional before making any decisions regarding topics mentioned in this podcast. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and not of Zeus. Please note that participants in this podcast may have financial interests in the matters discussed. Hi, I'm Nick Searle, a member of the Zeus Equity Sales Team and host of A Different Perspective. Here we interview interesting characters from the world of business and finance and uncover a different perspective. Follow us wherever you get your podcasts or contact me at live at zeuscapital.co.uk. It's Thursday the 15th of September. With me today I have Simon Young. Simon is an extremely experienced portfolio manager and for many years has focused on income mandates. After Cambridge University, Simon joined the then Mercury Asset Management, which morphed into BlackRock and recently has spent time at Aviva and the French firm AXA Investment Management. Simon, welcome. Morning, Nick. Thank you very much for joining us today. Shall we, as I always do, start with a little bit of background about you? Uh, Sure. Um... So, um, like most people in the financial services world, um, I went in um, straight away from university, um, doing the milk round, uh, following um, a degree in geography, uh, which left me ill-prepared for for the financial world. Um, But I managed to secure a place on the uh, Mercury Asset Management graduate uh, scheme. Which was a great accolade at the time. Yeah, I mean, at the time it was... uh, I think they had three or four percent of the UK stock market in terms of market share, um, so investments at Mercury, and it was run by um, Stephen Zimmerman and Carol Galley, who were household names. It was shortly after I joined; it was sold to um, Merrill Lynch and became Merrill Lynch Investment Managers. I don't think Merrill Lynch really knew what they were buying. In some respects, they were told that this was uh, this asset management thing was 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 really interesting. But in contrast to when we were bought by BlackRock, um, the, it took a long time for the name to change over the door. There was a lot of debate whether we were going to be Merrill Lynch Mercury Asset Management or, or Merrill Lynch Investment Managers, it turned out. Whereas um, BlackRock, uh, which that deal happened in uh, several years later, it was day one. It became BlackRock and... That was it. You were now in a BlackRock employee. The stationery changed, the name above the door changed, and that's what I have learned a lot about these companies um, when they do M&A. Is one of the questions you ask them is how quickly do you do you um, get into the, uh, changing the name and making that company feel part of your family? Interesting. So, uh, BlackRock on the UK team covering always covering income mandates, or how did that expand? So, uh, 1997, as, as I said, I started at, Mer- at Mercury and then uh, went through Merrill Lynch, and that was on the UK team. So, um, we had probably 20 fund managers and uh, analysts on the team. You had a dual role, and it was a great learning experience um, from some really experienced fund managers um, like Habib Anous, um, who was just a really generous man with the time that he would give junior analysts. And it was um, part of a, a big team, so um, we did some rotations around the business. Um, I did time on the private client team at Mercury Asset Management, and then that shortly became Merrill Lynch. And um, 
did time on the US equity team. But then my real love was, was UK equities. I found that it very difficult to invest in UK, US companies in some respects uh, without having seen what I was investing in. Whereas the UK companies, you could really touch it. You could you could feel it in many respects. And you were often using the products, whether it was a company like Next and their clothes or um, M&S, for example, and, and some of their food or Tesco's, you know, you, I really understood what I was, I was uh, investing in. And I guess no cultural differences, because even with the US management teams, I guess there would have been a little bit of some cultural differences. Yeah, there's a huge amount of cultural differences in, in uh, just in the UK as well. Just, um, so, so that's a very important point, as you say. And then uh, you know, a number of very good, successful years at BlackRock, and, uh, and how did you find or gravitate towards some more income-focused mandates? I've always been attracted to companies that produce lots of cash. Now, what they do with that cash uh, is their is their decision. Um, I believe that companies that generate cash have much greater optionality than companies that don't. And I'll, and I'll give you an example. So companies that generate cash have got the option of paying down the debt that they owe, reinvesting in the business, um, paying dividends, doing M&A, so doing acquisitions. So you can see how many different forms of optionality you have. If you're a loss-making company that doesn't produce cash, you've only really got one um, one out, and that is to invest for growth. So you're seeing all these companies at the moment uh, that are loss-making and trying to achieve a sort of sustainability of cash flows in three to five years in the future – um, are just having on this massive treadmill, whereas at least companies that generate cash can can prioritise different um, uses of that cash at different parts of the market cycle. And then I guess an income mandate is is well understood by many many private investors. And I guess as people move more towards retirement age, some form of steady income from your from your portfolio or from your investments is much needed. Yes, I mean especially when you consider the yield on on other forms of investment relative to to equities so we've still got very low yields in fixed income and with no prospect of of capital growth in those um in those actual yields or coupons um that is as much as you're going to get if it's a a three percent coupon on a bond that three percent is as much as income you're going to get for the remaining life of that bond you may get some um, capital appreciation if the bond is trading below par, but in terms of the a- income it produces, that 3% is stuck. So in, in, in nominal terms, it's fixed, and in real terms at the moment on fixing income, you're, it's going backwards at quite a pace. Um, at least with equity income, um, the dividends, one would hope, will grow over time, Although, you know, it is pretty tough out there at the moment for many companies yeah. with costs. So I would say that, that dividend increases will probably be uh, less. Um, the rate of growth will probably be less than it was in the past, I would suspect. So apart from apart from having a strong balance sheet or generating cash, what else do you look for when, when you would make a, an investment or buy a stock? Are there any other sort of um, leading indicators that, that listeners could look at? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think you, you need to uh, assess uh, a stock, and, and especially if you're looking at it for a five-year-plus t- time horizon, 
you're not just trying to buy the next couple of trading statements. What you're trying to buy is a piece of that business. And you've got to really assess, do I think this is a business that is, is there f to grow in the next five years and compound my money? Um, so what I look for, and, and each investor will be different, but I, I look for businesses that have a really, really solid barrier to entry to stop other people coming in um, and affecting them. Um, so Buffett's moat, then? That's a, that's a good way of describing it. You know, you can call it a moat. Um, but um, I think of... Uh, four barriers to entry that really give companies a, a protection. So if you're a lowest cost producer of what you do, it's very hard for, for other people to undercut what you do because you've got structurally lower costs. And I've mentioned a company like Admiral in the past because they are based in um, Cardiff and, and Newport. Um, structurally, they have a lower cost base than many of their other uh, motor insurance competitors who are based in parts of southern England, for example. So the cost per uh, employee is lower, um, property costs are lower, and it means that if they can sell their product for the same price, then they have a, they'll generate a slightly higher margin because they have structurally lower costs. Or put another way, they can just sit under the, the, cost, the price that their competitors sell at um, because they're a lower cost and win market share. So that's one thing I would look at in terms of structurally lower cost businesses. And I think that will really play out mm -hmm. in the next um, two or three years with uh, cost of living crisis. Another one would be uh, businesses where they have high levels of repeat income because um, we've seen it, you know, companies with subscriptions, for example, I think there's two types of subscription, ones you can do with and ones you can do without. And so it's no accident that people, in, when times are, are tough, are getting rid of Netflix or Spotify because they cost £7.99 a month. And actually, you can get what they sell elsewhere. So you can get TV for free in the UK. You can get um, music on the radio for free. Whereas if you're a company um, that, that needs some kind of software, you know, an example would be Microsoft. Yeah. Um, or Sage, which does accounting software. As a business, you probably can't do without either of those products. Um, so you, you don't. Once you've got them, you don't tend to swap them out when times are tough. You stick with them, and you cut other costs like the quality of um, of the loo roll you yeah. use in the yeah. office, or something like that. So um, that that's what a lot of these companies would do. And um, I guess having that recurring revenue allows people to to value the businesses there's a much more idea yeah. of future earnings there's more comfort in those future earnings and i guess you place those on a on a better pe yeah and i think what's going to be really really apparent in the next two or three years again are people will reappraise each individual company's pricing power the ability to raise costs when times are tough but those companies that that have a great product will be able to raise their prices and say, yeah, we, we're, we're going to put it up 5%, 10%. And the ones that will do well are the ones that can will raise it by 5 or 10% and not see massive amounts of customer erosion because those are products that are really needed. So, you know, if, if Microsoft raised its price by 10%, I, I doubt many businesses would, would, no, exactly. would switch away. I mean, exactly. in fact, I, you know, I, I think they would just grin and bear it. Um, so... 
Uh, that's a prime example at this point. And the last two, very quickly, are companies with high levels of intellectual property because they create a barrier to entry, whether it's something like a, a patent or a brand. You can't copy it directly. Um, and then, uh, finally, businesses with very high um, or very strong sales distribution networks. Uh, again, that's going to become very important in the next couple of years, the ability to sell your products um, far and wide, so not just relying on, say, a, a, the UK or... Europe, but the ability to sell your product in Asia or um, South America. And actually, with those four pillars, I guess it gives you quite a wide fishing pool. There are a lot. There's a lot of the market to, to go after that f- that fit nicely into those uh, that, f- that Venn diagram. I guess so those four. Yeah, uh, but there's also it means that you can quite quickly get rid of companies yeah. that you don't want to invest in because you think they've got there's nothing special about them. And there are, to be honest, a lot of companies out there that you look at them on the face of it, you think. This is not a special company. This is this can be under attack because it's it's got antiquated um, assets. It's being eaten away by new competitive forces like the internet. Um, it's it hasn't got any particularly good management team. You can just get rid of those and and don't waste your time sort of ch- trying to chase a five percent turn or something. You actually let's you know I, I personally think find companies that you can really invest in over a longer period and and i guess i guess sometimes that relative performance comes from what you don't own rather than what you do own yeah that's true that's true um you you know ultimately though we we, we can't live off relative performance we have to live off um absolute performance because that's what people invest in they want to have more money three five ten years down the line than they do today so um, relative performance, having only gone down 10% if the market's gone down 20 is not kind of the <laughs> the result that people want. I mean, that's quite right. And, and, and saying that, obviously, we have a, a somewhat fractious macro outlook. You know, how, do, how, how do equity income plays react to, to high inflation and, 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 and a raising right, rate environment? Well, historically, they've done, they've done actually very well because... Um, the when valuing a company, and this is the, probably a technical bit, um, the value of a company is the net present value of its future cash streams um, today. And so, what tends to happen with some of these less, let's call them sexy uh, income companies, where they've got high levels of cash flow today, but but maybe not going quite as fast as some of these high growth companies. Um, the, the majority of their cash flows that make up the value of the company are closer to today. So when you discount them, uh, and most of that money is, is closer to today, so as a discount rate goes up, it actually doesn't really affect the value of that company so much. Whereas if you've got a company that's a growth company that will, will be a potentially a massive company in 10, 15, 20 years' time, the preponderance of those cash flows don't come in years one to five. They come in years 15 to 25. Yep. But if the discount rate, the rate at which we, we discount those cash flows goes up because inflation is, is going up and the long-term um, inflation this is, then that um, net present value will fall. So they're much more affected. So it erodes future earnings, I guess. Yeah, future cash flows, yeah. So they're, they're the ones that you've seen this year you've seen the NASDAQ fall relatively heavily. And within that, you've seen the companies with high levels of growth 
imputed into the future, um, but not much cash flow at the moment. They're the ones that have really suffered. So the unprofitable internet companies is, is the way you'd sort of think of ones that have really suffered. So it's the financial media called long duration assets. Exactly. You've, uh, I think I heard you mention it in a previous yeah. um, a podcast. And then, I mean, none of us are macro experts, but uh, a quick a quick thought of about what happens over the next sort of six months to a year. I mean, what's your sort of how, how do you how do you plot out the market? What's your, what's your view? Well, I think you've already started to see what what households are doing, and you've you've already I've seen it in my own shopping patterns where you go into Tesco's and instead of getting um, some some flour that's maybe branded um you're getting um tesco's own label and you're saving yourself a, a pound you can't really taste the difference and you ask yourself why wasn't i doing that in the first place um but but I, I do find that there are certain brands you're prepared to trade off and say well i'll go from a brand to own label and i'll save um you know pounds um today for that whereas in other brands that you won't and you'll just say well actually no I'm that's a brand I really really like I really like the taste of it I'm not prepared to do that so I think people and companies are going to are making choices now based on you know what their likely cash flows are going to do in the next couple of years and you know people are pretty um you know realistic that their cash flows are going to fall so we're starting to see that with the number of the um Food retailers saying that uh, people are very much favouring own label. We've seen um, volumes down in companies like um, Hilton Foods today, which is a a low-cost producer of proteins uh, across um, pork and um, salmon, for example. You know, they've seen a sustained fall in, in volumes. And normally... That doesn't happen because people tend to eat the same amount of protein from one year to the next. Um, so that's, that's it's quite odd that this is this is happening. So yeah, I think in the macro we're going to see some pretty constrained um, consumer spending, and I think they're going to really prioritise, as I said, the areas that they really want. Um, and if you don't have a differentiated brand or you don't have some kind of consumer loyalty, you're right in the firing line there. No, it makes sense, especially if your energy bill has has doubled or or tripled yeah. over over the same period. But so. I mean, I'm no, certainly no macro expert, um, and then there's always a but, isn't there? So of course, but there's of always course. a but. I mean, but I do, uh, I, I am concerned that the banks will make another policy policy mistake. They've uh, let the genie out the bottle in inflation, and they determined to squash it. But they will history would tell you that they're going to squash it too far. Yeah. And they're really going to try and stamp on that, which will, um, you know, they're raising rates at a, at a point when people's own disposable incomes are getting cratered. I mean, I, I'm I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if we didn't see a hundred basis point raise from the from the Fed next week. Actually, I think I feel after yesterday's or was it yesterday or Tuesday's inflation print, they're going to have to do something quite aggressive. Yeah, well, it's not an area that I have a particular skill in. Is uh, looking at my own track record and predicting these things. Uh, I was. I think I, I wrote that I thought inflation wouldn't be as as, uh, as nearly as bad as it's turned out to have been, and I wrote that in a uh, client letter about eighteen months ago. Well, so I wouldn't worry. I was completely wrong there. I mean, you and you and Janet Yellen were the same, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't worry. So I mean, yeah. um, now what is really interesting, I think, and the bit we haven't touched on yet, is that for a fund manager, 
very rarely you stepped out of the sort of financial markets to some degree to run your own business. Yeah, that was um, that was a really interesting period in 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 my life, and it's out, it's out of necessity that these things happen. And some people say that you should um, you should get kids to be bored because it actually makes them start to do more interesting things and become more inventive. And I think recessions, again, will make people um, reappraise. If they lose their job, they'll reappraise their future and there'll be innovation coming out of it. And for me, um, I, I'd left Aviva and I was, con- I was in contact with a, an old uh, colleague, uh, sorry, not colleague, an, an old stockbroking uh, friend of mine, uh, Alex Schlick, and he said, well, we could do something together helping smaller businesses with uh, investor relations and there's been some um, changes as most of your uh, listenership will know in terms of MIFID 2 yep. and that makes it much more com- difficult for companies to get their investment case um, heard by fund managers in many respects um, so because they're not covered by as many um, they're not covered by as, ma- as many stockbroking firms so we we made it our mission to help them promulgate their store their investment case to fund managers and and it was it was an incredible learning process uh, setting up your own business branding it i built the website on on wix mm-hmm. um uh, i wouldn't say it was the best but it was that was a good uh, a good lesson in, in in how to you know be hands on and we were looking at other websites and then we had to get a client list who were willing and able to pay us money and then another another thing that we we learned was getting the money out of the clients as well. So we had some listed businesses, and we had one who was a financial services uh, company, and I could tell that they were having some cash issues because they wouldn't pay us. I think our, our terms were net seven days, yeah. um, which was always a bit optimistic. But they would sort of pay us on 60 days, and then they if they said, if you weren't included in that run, you'd get included in the next month's run. So wow. I think sometimes they would yeah. pay us in 80, 90 days. Yeah. And this was a FTSE 250 company. It's been taken private since, and I could tell they were having cash problems. And so it was a hell of a good learning process. Um, and I think you're going to ask me about young people and what, what mm-hmm. learning they should have. So I thought I might answer that now. Yeah. I think um, an amazing discipline for people to have, which which can suit you so well for the rest of your career, is to do uh, an accounting degree. I didn't do one. I've sort of done an accounting degree light in terms of having done CFA. I've, you know, I've got the CFA yep. level three. But I think if you've got a, a, a proper accounting degree and done a bit of audit afterwards, you really understand... Um, well, unless you work for Arthur Anderson, <laughs> <laughs> um, you really understand how some of these uh, these companies these companies work, and I think that gives you an amazing grounding. I think then if you then get some experience actually of working in a company after that, um, and dealing with the issues we just talked about, cash collection, um, looking at investment committee and wh- where we're going to invest our cash flow that the company generates. So we're talking about that. Do we prioritize capex so our own uh, investment in our own business or do we look for m a if you can get some grounding in that then i think actually that would make an even better fund fund management fund manager afterwards um because i think there's so much skill there that you would have learned about real businesses 
And I think it's um, a bit rich sometimes for us fund managers to sort of tell um, business people what we think they should be doing um, because they, you know, they run their businesses all day long and, and, and they know it so much better than us. But having said that, I think sometimes fund managers do know the the disciplines of return on investment yeah. better than uh, some of these um, these companies where they just think we've got to grow it. But actually, our questioning is, is meant to help them along the lines of, okay, let's help think about the prioritization of, of your, your investments. Are, is it going to get the best return? Especially if it's your clients capital that you're putting to work yeah. through through this business as yeah. well and our clients are wanting a, a good return that is above inflation in real i.e it's growing in real terms both um dividends and at um capital return so if we can marry those two together get the total return um to be well above inflation that's exactly what we want and so sometimes you 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 sort of say to management teams with um and you try to say it with 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 genuine respect. Um, is this really the best use of of of, of the the capital you're generating? Because this doesn't look like a great deal to us. This looks like a deal where, and, and it's it's trying to have an open enough conversation with management teams, but because they can be defensive, and and fund managers can be defensive as well, because fund managers can feel under pressure, and that's going to be a really tricky thing to come. There's a great chapter in I think it's the Outliers book about a CEO and the CEO's one job is capital allocation yep. and that's it. Well that's the whole of that book. Yeah. yeah <laughs> that's exactly. the whole of William Thorndike. That's exactly a really right. great book. Yeah. Really great book. And it's really uh that's a that should go on your reading list. Have you got a reading list? Uh, there's always uh, we'll put the, on we'll the put program. It on. I know it's not your book that inspired you will come to that in a second, but but no, you're quite right. The allocation of capital is the CEO's only sole job. Yeah. So uh, and that, that's a that's a fabulous book to read on the on those lines, um, and it's and it's being dispassionate enough to say, um, and we could go back to something like Yell, if you remember that back in back in the day, um, that was a business that was rolling up yellow pages, um, and it had a it had a fair chunk of debt that went with it, but they seemed to be doing a, a good job, and then this thing called Google came along. Um, now. Obviously, turkeys don't vote for Christmas, but they kept on going on these uh, acquisition trails. So the debt got higher, and then ultimately, you know, Yell came highboo, I think, at the very end. But yep. it was it was bust, and it was it was all over. Um, a lot of people had disinvested by by that point, and the shares were down ninety nine point nine percent by the end. But it was um, a total disaster. I mean, it's staggering. We had a business used to print people's phone numbers. I mean. Yeah, yeah. So it sounds so ludicrous now, doesn't it? Really, but it's but it's challenging um, management teams to say is this the best, really the yeah. best use of, of capital, yeah. and 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 I, I've spoken to to one uh, founder of a business uh, who challenges his CEO, who now runs the business. To, you know, there is potentially an existential threat for for that for that business. What are you doing to diversify? You know, how fast are you diversifying? Are, are the products you're diversifying into um, big enough products that are going to make a difference? And that was an interesting conversation with a founder um, who who sort of looked further than the next yeah. two or three years of yeah. options or yeah. paycheck. Yeah. It's funny, isn't it? Because you know, day traders 
traders, fund managers hopefully looking more than than you know, two years out, CEO hopefully looking five years out, and then you're right that that board role or, or founder role is a is a ten year if not further view of view of how the landscape of their business will change. Yeah, I've I've made some of the best returns I've made are in businesses where that have been run by by founders or people who act as founders. Um, you can you can sort of name them uh, people like um, Simon Wolfson at Next or Henry Engelhardt at Admiral or um, even Michael O'Leary at, at, yeah. at Ryanair. I mean, he's a fabulous uh, uh, raconteur, but he's a ruthless businessman. And he keeps looking out. You know, he's not looking at the next cycle, but the one beyond that. And that's why they, they keep ordering these, these planes at, to keep reducing their cost base because they know if they stop, there's this kind of existential threat for them and they'll become the next Air France or the next um, legacy carrier. And all of those three have had significant skin in the game. They own big portions of those businesses. And if you are owning a big portion, if that's your legacy for your future generations of your family, then then you have an eye on on returning value to, to all shareholders if you're a major shareholder. Yeah, absolutely. Now, um, speaking of which, your greatest inspiration and mentor? <laughs> well, it, I think inspiration would be certain members of my family who have become doctors. So my parents are both doctors, my dad's two brothers were doctor uh were doctors uh, my grandfather was a doctor so I, the, that's did, you br- did you break the mold i did because i didn't like blood let's be <laughs> totally honest <laughs> um but but that's inspirational to me people who um go through a ha- really hard training to, to do that on the financial services side um i mentioned habib anus earlier who was a He's now retired, a small cap fund manager at uh, Merrill Lynch uh, Investment Manager Stroke. Um, didn't get through to BlackRock. I'm not sure he quite got through to BlackRock. But he was always so generous with his time. So generous with his time to sit down with younger fund managers to talk through what we had just learned in the meeting. And people say, oh, this hybrid model of working sort of two days in the office and three days out. I think you just miss out on all those I little conversations agree. that, um, you know, everyone calls them the water cooler conversations, where you just sit, you know, sit down after a meeting and say, well, what did we learn there? What, what, you know, what was a bit weird? And um, I'll give you one anecdote. We, we once had a, a chief executive of a FTSE 100 company who... Um, I think he slightly objected to my line of questioning, and maybe I... Uh, we're probably not surprising. <laughs> maybe I should have been a bit more... Less direct, I suspect, is the way of putting it. Um, but, but I wasn't. Um, I felt that the questions we were answering, asking weren't being answered. In fact, I felt that he was really prevaricating. And at one point, he got out his mobile phone and said, look, this is we're also launching, launching some kind of... Um, a uh, service that allows people to listen to music. And I was thinking, well, this is not your this is not your core business by any mate, um, uh, means. And then he started to play "I Predict a Riot" in the in the meeting, and it was sort of ten BlackRock people thinking, "My God, what's going on here?" Um, but again, that's what pressure does to you. He was under pressure in his job, and 
uh, and, and was feeling it. But um, it, it that it just comes back. You know, everyone came out of that meeting and went, "My God, that was really weird. That was very strange. What is that telling us about yeah. about that?" Yeah. So sometimes it's not the financial uh, the financial clues to a business. But actually, how management are acting can give you a big clue as to the way the business is going. Which is why this business is so interesting and exciting, because there are so many elements that go into that melting pot. I mean, oh, totally. it'd be easy if we just had to pick going up shares, right? But there are just so many other influences and variables that, that make it as interesting as it is. Well, people talk about efficient markets, and, and, and the reason why markets aren't efficient often is because people there as you say there are so many different influences on individuals decisions because you're getting divorced you have to sell your um, share portfolio is that an economically rational thing to do at that time no maybe not but you're forced to do it so there are so many influences out there that aren't purely rational and people are greedy that's the other thing we've learned people are greedy they will try and uh, invest in companies where they think they can make a quick buck. And that's we've seen with um, a lot of these technology companies where um, you ask, or, or my view is maybe Bitcoin might be the same. Well, you ask someone why they own Bitcoin, they say, well, I'm not really sure, but it was going up. It's not going up anymore. Yeah. I don't think people tell you they own Bitcoin. Um, so there's a lot of people who just think, well, there's a trend to be following there, and I'll just I'll just buy some and I'll get off before that before it stops. It's very dangerous because that music can stop much quicker than you think, and you're you're left holding. Especially if there are no underlying cash earnings for that business or underlying balance sheet strength or some well, un- underlying moat that protects that business. Well, ironically, um, uh, <laughs> this will make you laugh. Ironically, Bitcoin is my biggest ever uh, return because I um, I bought like five quids worth once, just to see if I could use it for anything. And I and I couldn't. And it went up 35 times. Um, so it didn't change my life. Did like, you Did you still, could you find your access to your wallet? <laughs> I still think I've got it somewhere. And and uh, I did manage to sell a tiny bit of it, but um, uh, I still got it somewhere. But, it, but it, again, I couldn't find the use for it. Yeah. That's why I bought it, because I wanted to understand... Good what it was about, and maybe I could trade it for a cup of coffee or something like that. But no, uh, I've never been able to spend it on anything. Um, so that's what's always made me... Looking at the wrong website. So. Well, that, uh, I will ignore that one. Um, <laughs> I, I, do, I do think that um, for it to be useful, there, there kind of needs to, be, um, it needs to be... It needs to have a use as much as anything, and I just couldn't find it. So I've always been very sceptical of that. People tell me that the blockchain ledger is incredibly interesting um, but again that hasn't seemed to have come on quite as fast as as everyone no, i guess it's the application of the blockchain that's going to yeah. be the interesting thing um and then a book which inspired you well i, I really enjoyed the outsiders by yeah, william yeah. thorndike i thought that's a that's i mean a, i mean we hadn't spoken about this before it was i just no it's it a out, great so. book i actually sent that to a um a chief exa- uh, sorry a chairwoman of a company who had a slightly checkered uh capital allocation policy in my opinion and, uh, but produced a hell of a lot of cash. I'm not going to name it. Because, yeah, of course. But, but I sent that to her because I felt that as a new chairwoman, she was she was coming in with a clean sort of uh, clean view of this company, and I felt that it, c- it it still can be so much better than it 
than it has been in terms of its recent past of capital allocation. And so that's why I, I sent that one to her. And apart from that, because we obviously just mentioned that today, yeah. did you have one in, in the back of your mind? Uh, yes, I have uh, a couple of books I think are great. Um, think, Lead, Succeed by, uh, it's a self-published book, not by me, but by Hen- Henry Engelhart, fa- uh, the, the Admiral, founder yeah. of Admiral. Um, that's a more of a management book on how to to create teams, create a good culture, um, innovation. It's actually written for future generations of Admiral managers, but I, I heard about it, I read it, I really enjoyed it. It's written in a sort of folksy style. There's no, um, he's not too uh, keen on sort of long acronyms or anything like that, like management speak. He's, he's about common sense and, and, and about, and using a lot of stories from the found the uh, the founding days of Admiral mm-hmm. in 1993 um, uh, to to present day. So that's a great book. And then the other one I really enjoy because I think I have a, it speaks a lot of sense um, is uh, are the marathon letters which have been put into two books: is Capital Returns and Capital Account, and that they are just very sensible. And I think that what you know basically what they tell you is that most investors focus on the um, demand side for a for a company's products um, realistically though the thing that you can really have a look at more is the supply side so yeah. and airlines would be a perfect example of that you know when's the best time to buy an airline well most of the time it's never um, <laughs> but if you took something like um, Ryanair which has been which has been one of the best in, uh, investments in in a, in a sector that is noted for its value destruction. Um, uh, Ryanair has has um, the best time to buy that is when um, you know the industry is on its on its knees. It's trying to get rid of too much debt that it's accumulated in the prior cycle, so they're not buying planes. And so that is when a company that like Ryanair, which has got very good financial discipline, starts to buy planes at very low price um, because it, it realises it can structurally lower its cost base relative to other competition. So it's this idea that you can control... You, you can't really ever predict the demand side, but you can look at the, at the supply yeah. side. So I think that's a, a really interesting th- um, way of thinking about it. That's great. Simon, how can listeners get in touch with you? Uh, they can get in touch with me on LinkedIn, Simon Young not sure what else um simon young and then um uh on twitter i have a twitter handle uh at uk stock picker now i looked at one of your prior guests um he had sixty five thousand uh followers yeah um i've got 323 is that right well i mean i think i do follow you already but david here maybe (laughs) can add another one so we can do that for you i'm I'm at uh, uk stock picker um However, I did note that that prior guest also had managed to follow 28,500 people himself, although I suspect, therefore, there must be some kind of... It's probably a large paid entourage, I'm sure. (laughs) Either that or they've got someone who does their um, Twitter management for them, which I certainly don't. Um, This is what you see is what you get, I guess. But you are are proactive. I mean, I I see you tweet some very interesting ideas and and thoughts on the UK market. I think think they call themselves FinTwit. um, I think the FinTwit community is is a really interesting place for 
people who are starting out to to follow some some very very sensible people i'm not talking about the promotional people who say buy this mining company it's going up 500 times no i'm talking about the people who are pretty considered um there's some people that i would i would i don't want to uh, I'll name the people. I'm not saying follow the, yeah. anything they say, but what I'm saying is just have a look at what, the way they write. So it's it's people like Romboid One, um, Leon Boros is a, another. Yeah. Um, he's he's at Boros One, or is it maybe Boros Ten? I can't remember which way it is. Um, uh, there are here and there is, a, is another person who's who's interesting because there's a lot of these people who are have training in the financial services world and maybe have stepped back to run their own portfolios. And speak a lot of sense. Um, another another place would be something like Stockopedia, um, yeah. where there's it's a, a very, great offering. It's a great offering for about three hundred pounds a year, which allows you to screen uh, companies, screen the universe, but also there's a very very active um, community community yeah. um, who are prepared sometimes to do some quite detailed analysis on on companies. To, I, I've seen some analysis on these occasions that's, that's, that's better than, than sell-side and certainly more in-depth because people know the companies better because some people work in that industry and say, no, 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 the financial market seem to th- think this company works like this, but actually it doesn't really and and uh, so and, and give an explanation of why so why it doesn't. So that's, I think, very interesting. Simon, thank you so much. This has been wonderful. Thanks, Nick. It was really, uh, I hope, it was a useful conversation. Very much so. Thanks for listening to Different Perspective, a Zeus podcast. If you'd like to feature on the podcast or get in touch, you can contact me on live at zeuscapital.co.uk. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.